0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now.
1: 5pm North American Eastern Time, that's uh, 6pm in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 10pm in London, 11pm in uh, Copenhagen, where they've uh, dispensed with vaccines entirely, midnight in Kiev and Moscow in the same time zone now. But not yet the same country. Half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 2.45am in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. Uh, We had a little bit of uh, interaction on the subject of Nepal on Thursday's Mark Stein Show. 5am in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. 7am in Sydney and Melbourne. And a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri for our listeners across the Pacific. On this day, actually I think it's uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow is the 80th anniversary of the June day in 1942 when the United States agreed to send lend-lease aid to the Soviet Union. Uh, those were the did every was everyone putting the old uh, hammer and sickle as their twitter avatars back then and it was uh, joe stalin zoom calling it into parliaments all over the world 80 years ago The US agreed to send lend lease aid to the Soviet Union. Uh, Okay, let's get straight to the 1940s called Wanting Their Foreign Policy Back. Uh, Let's get straight to your questions. We have a brand new member. His name is Kelton. And that's a sufficiently distinctive name that I think he might be the only Kelton. In our club. So, uh, congratulations on that. We have like occasionally, I think we have quite rare names, and then it turns out we have multiple ones, like Gareth, very Welsh name, Uh, but we do have more than one Gareth. Kelton says hello from a new member of uh, the club. And by the way, this is how it works Uh, anybody is free to listen to the show. If you want to ask a question, you do have to be a member. Of the Mark Stein Club, and if, uh, as uh, Kelton did, you you join uh, and you're brand new, we like to shunt your questions up to the front. So this is Kelton's first question, his debut on our Clubland Q and A. Kelton says hello from a new member. Why are there people commenting on the Supreme Court and the issue of abortion as if the current circumstances will make a difference? In 2015, it was discovered in the United States. That babies were being cut apart and sold after being aborted. That's that's very true, Kelton. The United States is the only country in the free world in which there is a go, a, a very lucrative market in baby parts. Parent, Planned Parenthood making a big bunch of cash off, off of that. Um, that was further indication, says Kelton, that abortion was here to stay, and this was confirmed when elected Republicans feared blocking federal funding to Planned Parenthood would cause a federal government shutdown. That issue was lost then, if it wasn't already. What does it matter if the Supreme Court rules it as a states' rights issue? Sure, a red state could ban abortion as a result, but states like California or New York will double down on abortion. Besides that, what if in 10 years... The Supreme Court reinstates Roe versus Wade. We will be back at this same point where we're talking about the Supreme Court, which shouldn't have this type of role in the process, and not about babies that are being killed. The issue has been lost. Um, That's uh, that's Kelton's debut question. And it's an important one because uh, America is the abortion mill of the world. It's the abortion mill of the world, though, because... um, I agree with you, Kelton, that the Supreme Court shouldn't have this type of role in the, I'm not a believer, as I, my line to Tucker Carlson a couple of years back, a judge's republic is no republic at all. It's a perversion of a republic. It's either a, a country is either a republic or it's not. But if all the important decisions are made by nine judges, which in effect means five judges, which in effect means one judge, the designated swinger, uh, which role John Roberts uh, is currently playing with some enthusiasm, uh, a judge's. Republic isn't a republic at all. it's complete you know it's rubbish to even entertain the thought and these constitutional uh, fetishists, you know their names ought to actually address that because it's the biggest failing of the Republic is that the uh, appointment of a judge, a judge has become uh, the most significant event. In the history, in in uh, in 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 political in political events. So I'm with you on that. It shouldn't be done like that. People, uh, if you don't have a Supreme Court as supreme as this one, you have to be more honest about these things. You have to be uh, honest in the, instead of trying to divine a a a an 18th century provision for gay marriage. You have to say, okay, yeah, I know this thing's never existed throughout human history, but we've changed our minds, okay? And that's fundamentally more honest. So I would rather this were left to parliaments uh, and referenda and other sorts of things. So for that very reason, Kelton, because of your point about the Supreme Court not having this type of power, the fact that it then goes back to 50 different states, which whatever one feels about them, are closer to their populations than, you know, one swinger judge ruling for over 300 million people. That in itself is an improvement. Now, I take your point that there's still going to be abortion. And if you're an anti-abortion absolutist, you don't. You think all abortion is evil. You think life begins at conception. Then the fact that California and New York are still going to be abortions a go go is obviously a total affront. It's completely disgusting. Planned Parenthood will still be able to make the big bucks, and they'll still be able to be shipping baby parts hither and yon. But again, but again, I say to you, it's it's. Uh, better as a as a matter of law it's better that these things are done honestly. Secondly the very uh, the very fact of the baby killing which is what American abortion is and again I accept that you know um, if you believe life begins at conception all abortion is disgusting but it requires I think a particular level of desensitization. Uh, to be able to yank a viable baby at the end of the third term out of the vaginal canal, uh, just keeping sufficient of the live baby in the canal to be able to plunge your scissors into Junior's skull and collapse the skull before the last bit of the skull emerges from uh, the vaginal canal, which is what a lot of American abortion is. I was a lot of people, a lot of Americans who watched my uh, conversation on the day this thing leaked, um, which is whatever it is now, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, something like that. And I had Natalie Wolf, um, Naomi Wolf on, who objected to my characterization of her as uh, pro abortion. And indeed, you have to say that she actually is. I mean, you know, she's undergoing a full-scale transition here, and that may well be the last to go, but she's basically, she, from from being a hardcore liberal Democrat, uh, she's now a kind of, uh, you know, squishy rhino Republican on uh, a lot of this stuff. But... Uh, uh, now, Anne McElhenney followed Naomi, and and then uh, you know, uh, Naomi had been talking about what abortion is, in most of the rest of the Western world, where it's something you get within the first uh, trimester, within the first thirteen weeks. You know these Scandinavian noir series, these detective series that Americans like to watch, and they're always surprised when there comes a case where. Uh, There's an abortion thing on it, uh, and uh, a young lady discovers she's pregnant. She thinks, oh, never mind, I'll go and abort it. And she goes to the hospital, and she's told, no, oh, sorry, you're more than 13 weeks pregnant, so you can't abort it. You can in certain circumstances, but you've got to get two doctors to sign off on it. Then we had Anne McElhenney who came on, and uh, who was talking about Gosnell. And the fact that Gosnell was doing freelance, what Planned Parenthood does on an industrial scale including keeping the baby parts and selling them. And, uh, and, and then this business of yanking 15 16ths of a live, I don't even know, I don't even know. Uh, you know, it's all very, uh, it's all very antiseptic uh, when you abort a baby in the first trimester. It's easy to persuade yourself of the Democrat myths about abortion, because it's, uh, there's nothing very much to extinguish in there. And so you can tell yourself that this isn't a human life, or at at the very least, that it's not a human, a recognizable human, which is how we uh, distinguish. It's a shallow way to look at it, but one can understand that, you know, a lot of, low-grade people who work in these abortion clinics. And, you know, it's kind of odd that you become a doctor in order to kill things, but that's what some of these people have done. Um, but it's diffi- It's different when you actually, you know, you've got 15 16ths of a live gurgling baby coming out, and then you've got to plunge the scissors in and uh, or, or do what either into the skull or do what Gosnell preferred to do. He was very good at it because he killed a lot of babies. So he's a good baby killer. He's very efficient at it, and he used the scissors to snap the spine. Now, Anne McElhinney and I talked about this, and what was interesting to me is that, that this was for a U.K. audience primarily, people were absolutely astonished. They had no idea about this. They assumed that the abortion regime in the United States was like the abortion regime in Western Europe. And this idea that people, that this idea that thanks to the Supreme Court's intervention into the matter, uh, uh, there's a sort of one-size-fits-all Abortion regime that goes up to the very end of the third trimester, and in fact, as a practical matter, into the fourth trimester, really isn't it? Because when when the baby's delivered and then killed, uh, that's that's not that's that's the fourth trimester, I think, as a practical matter. So uh, so the Supreme Court has made by its intervention and by uh, you know constitutionalized this is the complete crapola. Of the American system, if you don't mind me saying so, Mark Levin, uh, this idea that you have a constitutional court uh, that, it, that is not ruling on constitutional principles, but is uh, basically uh, funct- just functioning as a super elite legislature beyond the reach of the people. This is what's wrong with it. It's nothing the founders would have wanted. Doesn't matter whether you're an activist judge or you're an originalist judge, uh, the founders wouldn't have been interested in any judges uh, uh, basically engaging in the, uh, having the role they now have. So it's made it worse. It's made it this one size fits all. And uh, and it's and in a sense, it's led to the polarization of the debate, the debate, Kelton, uh, what will happen? For start, what will happen if this d- d- apparent preview of their decision were to be correct is that we will be more honest about it. There will be states that are pro-abortion. There will be states that are anti-abortion. Uh, and there will be young women who, as, as I know, I, I have very vivid memories of that, of uh, being on the night boat from Dunleary in Ireland, in Ireland to Holyhead in Wales, and you'd see these sallow-faced adolescent girls on their way to a Welsh hospital to get the abortion they couldn't get in Ireland. And um, uh, and and uh, I think it's I think it will be good that there will be some jurisdictions, not many, in which it will be illegal to get an abortion. And there will be those where uh, you can uh, you will have to go to if that's, you know, you will have to you might have to go to California or New York to get an abortion and certainly to those kinds of states to get a late term abortion. So you'll have to vote with your fetus, so to speak, if it's that important to you. But the Supreme Court judgment, the constitutionalization of this issue has meant that uh, this isn't where the American people are. And you can regret, as Kelton does, where the American people are—that they're sort of kind of, oh well, if we've got to have abortion, it should be, you know, within the first trimester, all a bit on the uh, on the quiet, and uh, nothing that looks too much like a baby. And uh, I'm I'm a bit iffy when it gets to whether you know it's rape or incest or blah blah blah. blah, blah. But you're never going to get, you're never going to get to ending the wholesale slaughter of American babies in one fell swoop. You're going to have to do it incrementally, as great evils are often abolished incrementally. Um, sla- uh, slavery, for example, in the British Empire. First, the trading of slaves was abolished, so you it it ceased to be a business, and then the owning of pre-existing slaves was uh, 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 followed. On that, you know, there's multiple, there's multiple uh, stages to these things, and um, and and so. Why we're talking about it now? I'll, I'll add this thing to it too. Why we're talking about it now is because the the politics of it is so nuts uh, that there are people who are threatening to kill these guys on the Supreme Court. You know, so Brett Kavanaugh is uh, has had some guy, and doesn't mean doesn't make most Americans will not even be aware of it because the big news story to them this week is the January sixth committee. Uh, investigating uh, people who wandered around the capital ineffectually. They didn't kill anyone. They're not like this guy outside Kavanaugh's house. So that's the, the, there's two issues here. One is the fact that you're now full-blown banana republic and that you've got intimidation of judges. This is what happens, you know, the drug cartels do this every time, you know, the Mexican judicial system throws up a judge minded to be a little too independent on the nature of the criminal activity in his district. Uh, so uh, then the uh, the gangs go, uh, the drug the drug cartels go and have a quiet word with him. And if he does, he's not unresponsive to the quiet word, uh, then they kill him. They'll detect you, and uh, that will be the ultimate lesson for any judge. Uh, minded to be so independent. And we're, you know, we're getting close to that stage now here in the United States, thanks to thugs like uh, Chuck Schumer. You know, it's incredible. Trump is supposed to have incited the January the 6th insurrection. Chuck Schumer actually did incite the uh, attempted murder of a uh, member of the Supreme Court. Uh, but he's gotten away with it. Uh, and would that be because he has a D after his name? I think it would be. Anyway, Kelton, uh, that's, you know, this is, you're not going to get, you're not going to get what uh, pro-life people would like. The whole thing gone. But you can, uh, you can at least uh, accept that the death of Roe versus Wade will make the abortion debate more honest, more localized. It will impose more variations. And the constitutional right to pull 15 16ths of a healthy baby at full term uh, out of the vaginal canal and Plunge the scissors into the remaining bit inside. That will no longer be a constitutional right, and that doesn't seem like much of a victory. But in an evil, in an evil society, uh, made more evil by the absurd deference to this idea of, you know, nine guys in black robes as supreme intergalactic arbiters, it will make our society marginally less evil. John Fauci, not Fauci, Fauci, says, Mark, if the GOP had any credibility, they would expel the automatic opposition votes uh, within its own party. What good is a majority membership if it isn't authentic? I wouldn't mind occasional dissent. But the usual suspects whose names I will not deface this comment with are, as I said, automatic. What is the benefit of wasting campaign expenses on them? Should political parties be joined to the death and taxes trope? I would support the elimination of all political parties and prefer candidates to present as individuals and to run on their own integrity. What say you? Well, you would have had a lot of support for that 200 and 250 years ago, but it doesn't really, it's not really going to work like that now. It's a bit, we've left it a bit too late uh, for it to work like that. And um, what you, the, the, pro, the problem here, well, the problem here is the two, is it's not the same in either party. Um, because, you know, in the, in, on the Democrat side, you basically got one senator who's awkward for the leadership. On, on the Republican side, there is a whole reach across the aisle wing. You know who they are, uh, Lisa McCowski and Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and, and all the rest of it. You see two of them uh, on this stupid January 6th committee, Liz Cheney and, uh, and the crying guy Kinzinger. And any party ought to be a broad church, really, because that's just the way it's going to be. You're going to have, because people have different different interests. Some people are, you know, just social, uh, social conservatives, we've just talked about. Others are, you know, they're foreign policy guys. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, then there's others who are fiscal conservatives, blah, blah, blah. So you're never going to get enough, unless you're going to go to a full-blown parliamentary system whereby parties come and go as they, they do on the continent and as they do even in the, uh, in the Westminster system in, uh, in the UK and Canada and Australia. Here it's a frozen party system, one party of which, one party is very disciplined, super disciplined, and in the end they all stick together. Uh, it's not the same with the other party. So it, this isn't necessarily a problem with parties. It's a problem with the Republican Party, which actually is basically a party for the donors. You know, the the, the, the Democrat Party, no, there, there's, there's millions of what you might call uh, everyday Americans, in Hillary's phrase. And those everyday Americans live in towns where the mills and the factory have closed and... You know, your uh, kids have got nothing to do except do the night shift at the quickie crap or the OD on fentanyl. And, no, and neither party is interested in it. Ent- There's tens of mi- millions, tens of millions of people who live in towns like that. And, no, and nobody's interested in them, neither party, because the, uh, the left-wing party, the Democrats, are all about delivering to niche um, interests, and that doesn't matter whether you're talking about the transgendered bathroom crowd or the gay marriage crowd or the open borders crowd. Uh, and the left generally delivers for them. The problem with the right wing party, so-called the Republican Party, is it too isn't interested in all those tens of millions of people out there um, but it's not the, nor is it the creature of various identity group factions within the party. It simply is the donors' party, uh, and it and uh, it doesn't like it. When you listen, for example, I found it very interesting. Paul Ryan, who was Speaker of the House during those first two years, now if he'd want to be a consequential speaker instead of just a forgotten ass, um, he would have. Uh, he, w- he would have gone hell for leather on the agenda that got Trump and him elected, and you would have had a crackerjack two years with a Republican majority, uh, Republicans in control of the House, the Senate, the White House, you would have had a crackerjack two years because he never believed any of it, because in effect he lied When he said in those first days after the Trump election that he was on board with the Trump agenda, he lied, basically. Uh, And then he went sort of more, uh, he he wasn't exactly full-throated in support, but he was certainly dishonest in leaving a lot of things unsaid. And now I see he's fully supportive of Liz Cheney in this persecution of Trump supporters because he 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 wants the donor party back. And that's the problem there. The problem is not with the with political parties per se. They come and go. They come and go. They go in weird ways. You know, on GB News, we've been talking about the rise of Sinn Féin, for example, the uh, political wing of the IRA, uh, north of the border and south of the border. It's interesting to me that actually, although... They're Sinn Féin and they campaign as one, but they're subtly differently targeted south of the border from what they are north of the border. Parties In a healthy system, parties come and go. In a frozen system, you have the same two parties for 150 years. And what's bad about it is that one party delivers for its base and the other doesn't. Uh, Robert Murrell, or Morrell or Moral says, Hi, Mark. Most people understand surrendering control of our border to international crime syndicates in terms of crime and law, right and wrong, which tends to reinforce the already entrenched attitudes separating the political right from left. But I wonder how many on the left support open borders because they fail to comprehend the numbers and the scale of environmental change those numbers imply. For example, if we accept that we have added some 30 or more millions of illegal immigrants to the country in recent years, a low estimate by many accounts, then we will need to build housing roads, power plants, etc., to accommodate them my liberal colleagues at work would emphatically nod their heads at this point and say yes and what's wrong with that but i explained to one colleague recently that 30 million is the equivalent of the populations of the top 10 most populous cities in the usa in other words from new york los angeles chicago houston right down to dallas he shook his head in disbelief perhaps We need to change the way we argue this point. It's as much an environmental problem as anything else. Invite our liberal neighbors to take a ride through their favorite stretch of countryside and then invite them to imagine it all bulldozed to make way for an entire U.S. metropolis, say Chicago, plunked down on top of it. Because that is surely what is happening now, whether they realize it or not. I wonder how many might rethink their position. What do you think? Might we make more progress that way? Oh, and by the way, maybe that is the reason Bill Gates is buying up so much farmland. We're on our way to doubling our population by immigration alone. That implies a lot of real estate development. Yeah, you're right. But we are dealing with... uh, incredibly stupid and innumerate people here. So that, you know, you're right. It's adding another 30 million, adding 6 million as the repeal of uh, whatever it's called. What is this thing called too? Title 42, whatever it is. Its repeal um, will let in you know, basically six million people by the end of September. That would be regarded as a lot for any other country. An awful lot. I think there are too many people right now with 300 and whatever million it is. I think it's very hard to say a first world country with 300 million. Uh, and you know, even people, even people on the right, don't get it. Trump was it, it was entirely within his rights to ask when when he was told the top ten providers of immigration to the United States, the people pouring through the border, and you know, there were there was Haiti and all the usual countries, and he said uh, he famously dismissed them as bleephole countries, and demanded to know. Uh, why we don't get any immigration from non-Bleephole countries such as Norway. That was the example he gave. Well, Norway's only got four to five million people. So the entire population of Norway could move here and you wouldn't notice it because it's going to be less than the number of people coming in by the end of September. Um, so that, so that uh, it's not people don't grasp it people the people people don't grasp it i mean they actually have an acute housing shortage in the uk and for young people it's terrible you, and when i say young people i mean people who are 43 and still can't get their first foot on the housing ladder because you know you basically they're building you know, they're having to build things for all these people just walking into the country. Now, you're right to make the environmental issue. These are all these environment uh, mentalists who are telling you, you need to go and get these all you see all these women? The crazy left-wing women who are doing these, uh, oh, I'm having my tubes tied because it's totally irresponsible to bring a baby into this world. And uh, to have that baby, never mind two or three babies, I'd be destroying the planet. So I'm having my tubes tied for Gaia. I'm having my tubes tied to save the planet. You see that you can Google it. You'll come up with it's kind of tragic, these women doing this and they point out the the ones who aren't quite as moronic as the run of the mill environmentalists will point out that a person living in a first world country such as say in uh, in in some uh, fancy part of the united states phoenix arizona or whatever has a carbon footprint That's uh, thirty times higher than some baby in Somalia. So that's why the first worlders—that's they say—why first worlders have to tie their tubes, and it's not a problem for all these Somalis and Afghan women having seven, eight, nine kids apiece because they don't have the carbon footprint uh, of somebody living in a Western society. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That's good. Good. Congratulations on tying your tube. Just a just a question though. Uh, why then do you believe in open borders? Okay, I get it. I get the logic. We need fewer people living a first world lifestyle. So why are you so keen to move millions of Somalis and Afghans from, uh, from, from their own countries uh, to the United States so they can have an American-sized carbon footprint? How does that... Uh, help reduce the rise of the oceans, wouldn't the best thing, if if the problem is Americans living an American-sized lifestyle, isn't the thing to do to tie your tubes, as you're very kindly doing, but also tie the chain around the door to America at the Rio Grande and say, sorry, we'd rather you lived in your bleephole countries and had a much smaller carbon footprint. But nobody, the, the privilege of being on the left is you never have to examine, you know, Marx used to go on about the internal contradictions of capitalism. They have nothing on the internal contradictions on leftism. Um, you know, we, you talk about the environment. So many beautiful parts of America are uglified because you have these huge, even just driving you on some two-lane blacktop. Driving in the middle of nowhere, and they've still got these like huge shoulders half the time on the roads. It's that would be like a four lane highway in Spain or Italy or France or, or whatever. But here, you don't build four way highways, you just build a little bit of two lane rural blacktop and then put these huge, wide uh, shoulders on the side of them. Uh, and it's ugly as hell. And it's environmentally devastating and they're completely unnecessary. I mean, I, I assume they're there so, you, you know, if a car breaks down, it can pull over onto the shoulder. Yeah. How many times do you actually see that on the two-lane blacktop? But the environmentalists don't, don't look at it that way. They're quite happy, you know, uh, when it comes. They, they drive through and they don't see that. They don't see it and it, and and the the big government that because the highway departments here are all super over regulatory and all the rest of it and so putting in these these great ugly shoulders all the way um the the left doesn't see it the left and if you ask them about that they you know they'd say oh it's safety isn't it it's safety isn't it it's, it's the sort of equivalent of the COVID mask. For the, one, for the one in four million guys who does break down and needs the shoulder, it's good to have like a 3,000-mile shoulder from Maine to California there for him in case he needs to pull over onto it. You know, people don't – people – the internal – the point about Marx is the internal contradictions. He thought capitalism had its internal contradictions, but they're self-correcting. The problem with the left's internal contradictions is they're not self-correcting. Drew Weber says, hello, Mark. Boris Johnson survived. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> That's not uh, Nigel uh, Farage's view. Um, if, ever, if there ever was a time for the US to adopt the no-confidence vote, now would be it. Absent that, there is little evidence that the so-called loyal opposition is doing anything of note in halls of Congress to push back? How much more damage can the US endure over the next six months before a supposedly new House and Senate is seated? This is assuming they will be poised to make major course corrections, which, if recent history is any guide, is not guaranteed. No, no, we're sort of... uh Uh, We're coming up to basically the November 2010 election after which um, Obama before the new uh, Senate with Scott Brown had been seated, um, Obama basically uh, rammed Obamacare down the gullet of the nation in the teeth of those results. and he was happy to do it because he, he, he made a bet. I wrote about it at the time in my syndicated column. He made a bet that the Republicans wouldn't have the guts to repeal it because they never have the guts to repeal anything, you know, because he's been looking at their—if you look at the Republican Party platform, well, we're, competing, we're, you know, we're committed to repealing the uh, Federal Department of Energy ever since Jimmy Carter created it. Yeah, that would be actually quite easy. To do, but you've never done it. You've never done it. You, you, you don't. You, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to be rude about the Republican Party, but we know. Let's suppose that it. It requires. They can't. It's too big a red wave, so that it's beyond even the um, capacity of the Democrats to steal. So. The Republicans win the House and the Senate. Then what? Are you going to be just Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell 2.0? What are you going to, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? They bet the Democrats and they're not What The thing about this, what's happening in every aspect of your life, whether it's... Uh, I saw a funny line on uh, out there on the internet, uh, you know, who... who uh, when, when, uh, whatever it was that Repub- Republicans are being accused of not, uh, of not remembering January the 6th, <laughs> the insurrection that's on TV, you know, Rep- Republicans are being told they don't remember January the 6th. Oh yeah. I remember January the 6th. Gas was, uh, $2.19 a gallon. <laughs> and I thought that's actually a cute line. Uh, it's a, that's a very neat line, uh, But the the fact all this is deliberate, the gas price is deliberate, the baby formula shortage is deliberate, the unsettling of daily, you know, things happen far away. And you're not always in Afghanistan, Ukraine, it's hard to be interested, the the story is full of foreigners with unpronounceable names. Who can keep track of it all? But gas going up every day. You pass the pumps on the way to work. Baby for- formula. You've got to get to the uh, supermarket. You've got to get to Price Chopper at 5 in the morning to get the last bit of baby formula. These are all things that are done to affect you to done to to unsettle you to get you used to a permanent emergency in which government has extraordinary powers there's nothing they put a boob Uh, at the top of this regime. So you think, well, this must be because this guy's totally incompetent. I mean, uh, look at him on the TV. Yeah, he's, he's he's the front boob. He's the boob at the front of the operation to make you think this is incompetence rather than the fact that they're doing this to screw you over deliberately. There wouldn't be a uh, uh, uh any problems with uh, gas, there wouldn't be any, any need for Russian gas. If the Keystone pipeline was finished now, it, it had been 50% completed at the time Biden shut it down. Uh, had he not shut it down, uh, it would it, uh, there's a good possibility it would have been completed by now and there would be, you know, the world would be a very different place it's all it's all deliberate it's all deliberate it's all deliberate and what are the republican i mean you say this i would like it if there was a no confidence vote but the, the it's not a parliamentary system I would like it if there were an Australian system so that when when was this idiot inaugurated? January the 20th. So by about February the 4th, under the Australian system, they'd have all got together in a room. They'd have removed him. He'd have been calling an Uber uh, because he would have lost his driver. Never mind the stupid 112 car motorcade that... Uh, the president now commands, and uh, and the new guy would have been being uh, sworn in and taking his oath of allegiance uh, over at the governor general's house. Um, but th- there's no the the American the American system isn't like that. So this guy is there for a fixed, and he's the boob. He's the boob who is fronting a non-boob operation. This stuff is twenty is the 24-7 dismantling of all the assumptions about American prosperity. They're teaching you. They'll blame it on climate change. They're blaming it on Putin at the moment. year or two down the line, they'll be blaming it on climate change. Yeah, we can't get baby formula because of uh, rising sea levels in the you know, in the uh, South Pacific Island that grows all the baby formula. So, you know, that's why we really need, they want to get, they don't want COVID. People are over COVID. People are bored with COVID. People don't care about the next variant, blah, 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 blah. But we're not going back to normal. Not now, not ever. Michelle Adulac says, Dear Mark, I'm curious. About the attempted assassination of Justice Kavanaugh, lots of questions, really. But this one hasn't been asked much. Where and when and how did this guy procure his arsenal? I am assuming that he didn't bring it on the flight. Lord knows you can slip practically anything past the TSA, but you can't actually and uh, can't actually count. On it, so he bought the gun, the extra magazines, the ammo, the tactical knife, the body armor, the boots designed to obscure footprints, etc., once he was on the ground. Uh, but ISTR that none of these things are legal to sell in DC either. So what is it? An accomplice with access to arms in a less finicky place than DC? Or what? That's an excellent question, Michelle. You know, I haven't been following this guy that closely, but he came from the, uh, you know, most, most of these crazy guys who decide to kill somebody, decide to kill somebody nearby. You know, they go and shoot up the the local grade school or whatever but but this guy came from the other side of the country and as you say he came with a ton of stuff that you can't actually uh, get past even the dopier tsa agents so there is so that in itself that in itself is interesting but the point here is nobody's, you know, know—these are. this was a mostly peaceful assassination attempt. That is how the Democrats uh, and their friends in the media see it. So there's total lack of curiosity about this guy. Uh, we don't see the Hollywood celebrities going to the White House like Matthew McConaughey did over the Texas shooting and saying, OK, enough and most most Americans, I would wager, are not even aware that this incident has happened. that's that's how that's really how bad it is. Eric Dale says, welcome, Kelton. I think that you will enjoy being a member of the club. That's for Eric to say I couldn't say that, but I certainly hope he's in the the right on that. Thank you for that, Eric. It's not funny. I don't. I don't understand why, really, why people just want to. Be. I started calling, you know, the Democrat media court eunuchs. Uh, I think back in the Clinton era, and and people would jib at that, because, you know, you you. I remember being with David Frum just at the start of the impeachment trial. We were having tea somewhere in the just on the edge of, the Capitol with. A lefty guy, who a rather famous uh, lefty guy, who said, uh, "Well, why are you, you know, we said, well, why are you sticking with Bill Clinton?" Because it was interesting to me that the only two lefties who were revolted um, uh, by him uh, both happened to be um, uh, both happened to be British journalists uh, working in uh, in America, and. And uh, uh, the guy said, well, in the end, he's, you know, Clinton's our guy and we're going to stick with him. But there was they weren't as fully in they they weren't as fully invested in it. You know, they still had to, uh, as as uh, the NBC gal uh, said to Juanita Broderick, they did a big interview with her, which had it been played. Uh, on NBC during the impeachment trial would have finished Clinton. Juanita Broderick uh, gave this interview and talked about being raped by Bill Clinton. And Lisa, whatever her name was, at NBC News, Juanita eventually got sick of waiting for it to appear and called her up at NBC News and said, when's this thing going out? And Lisa, what's her name, said to her, well, the good news is you're credible, the bad news is you're very credible. In other words, they were making a political decision not to air it. Now, since then, we don't they don't even agonize over things like that. They don't they don't agonize over what they agonized about in the nineteen nineties. We understand they just they just basically don't they don't cover the stories. They whoever was it Jim Treacher who said Uh, Oh, no, I think it was Iowa Hawk who who said it's all about covering stories with a pillow and smothering them till they're dead. So that uh, so that with, you know, you might hear something about this Justice Kavanaugh assassination thing two years down the road when it doesn't matter, just like you do with Hunter Biden's Hunter Biden's thing. Uh, But 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 but. But it's they—they they actually are court eunuchs now. I don't. I wouldn't even want to. I wouldn't want to work for those organizations. There's no self-respect in it. Is there? You know, every little itty. It's like. Uh, it's like all those. Sarah Palin was really back in 2008. Was an early example of this. They suddenly all get. Uh, they are suddenly all interested in, you know, what she was doing at high school in Alaska a gazillion years ago in a way they're not interested in any aspects of uh, Barack Obama's mysterious thing. Mike Towler, mysterious uh, uh, resume, Mike Towler writes, as at least some people are aware, the media is now divided into two groups. Actually, the media is divided into two groups, the, those who say the media is divided and us old Squaresville cats who still say the media are divided. But be that as it may, Mike continues, the first group, consisting of the BBC and essentially all regular newspapers and TV stations, produces a sort of state-sponsored propaganda along the lines of the Soviet Prada, Pravda... I <laughs> The Soviet Prada, that's actually a very, ladies, that's a very bad story. You don't want to go there. Uh, along the lines of the Soviet Pravda, which has only a tenuous relationship with the actual truth. Your grandma watches this religiously, accepts its globalist leftist convenient truths as absolute and is completely unaware of the existence of alternative news sources. This second group, consisting of what are essentially privately produced blog sites some with pretensions of being proper newspapers has its fair share of basement dwelling nutters to be sure but with a little discernment on behalf of the reader it also uh, it uh, a little discernment it also contains the truth about matters which the regular media lie about routinely, either directly or by omission. It mentions the 2000 Mules documentary demonstrating massive election fraud in the US, which the regular media in lockstep refuse to mention, even to slag it off. It mentions the millions of vaccine injuries that the regular media pretends don't exist, when 20 years ago they would have had hysterics over the occurrence of a couple of dozen. My question is, how is this system being maintained essentially uniformly across all news media without a single one of them cracking. What is to stop a daring journalist on a reputable publication like The Spectator from writing a piece on 2,000 mules, even a sarcastic one. Are the editors really all on the payroll of globalist oligarchs with access to the money printing system or the vaccine profits? Do compromising photographs exist of them shagging young girls on Jeffrey Epstein's island? Has the government discreetly made all mention of such topics against the law? How the hell is this happening? I freely admit I don't understand do you do you I don't I freely admit I don't understand do you <laughs> so, sorry sorry uh Mike I uh, I need to uh I need I need the George Bush senior stage directions put in here message I care and all that I freely admit I don't understand do you well I think I do I think you know a lot of it is is just showbiz uh that you you uh some of the most interesting topics to discuss are not the ones that are going going to bring you the big bucks as we all know you know for example cumulus decided that uh, anyone who went on about the uh election fraud uh, in their employ would be fired. Now, I was my when I was guest hosting for Rush, I went out on a lot of those Cumulus stations, and I mocked them openly on it, and they didn't take me off the air uh, because there's a sort of calculation of uh, risk uh, in some of these things. But I know I do notice that every Cumulus host, including all the Butch boys, all went quiet about it. You know, these are people who. Um, have all the butch music and then the easy listening opinions, the opinions that don't threaten anyone. There's uh, there's a very prominent show that is uh, an almost laughable example of that. Now, you gave the example of The Spectator. What's to stop a guy writing a piece? I used to be the film critic of The Spectator, uh, the, the successor to Graham Greene, who... Uh, was film critic, the great English novelist who was film critic of The Spectator. And people hated him because he did a vicious attack on uh, Shirley Temple. And and uh, I, I, I would have written a piece on 2000 Mules. If, if you don't know what 2000 Mules is, by the way, this is Dinesh D'Souza's uh, documentary on how the election was stolen. And uh, I I was interested in two thousand meals. I don't particularly get on, with, as I've said before, it's no secret or anything. I don't particularly get on with Dinesh D'Souza, um, but he's, you know, he's, uh, and that doesn't matter. I, I don't suppose it matters to him, and it doesn't matter to me. It's uh, it's. He's got He's got his way of doing things and he's found a a, uh, a form that works for him and he does it and he does it very well. And I'm always I've always been pleased to interview Dinesh on I can't off the top of my head remember whether I've ever interviewed him on Fox, but I've interviewed him numerous times. On uh, Rush's show, and I've always been very pleased to have him there. So he made this film. I would have written about that film, whether I liked it or not as a film, I haven't seen it, but I would have written it uh, on it for the spectator, and I would have expected them to publish it, and I'm pretty sure they would have published it. What I notice is that on all these things, um, when you, for example, when I'm, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm guest hosting for Tucker on Fox or uh, I'm doing the Mark Stein show on GB News. It's always the same thing. I do my uh, rough script of what I'm planning to do, planning to say, and uh, you uh, uh, it gets emailed to... Uh, headquarters and the producers send it upstairs for the suits to give the once over to generally to the highest level within the building. And there's always things that they don't, that they're not happy about. I And I'm not even talking about ideological things here too. Sometimes there are certain guests of who are not approved of and they're not happy with those guests and they want that guest removed and replaced by someone of more conventional bent you know I, i'll give you um you, you know you you can guess the names i'm thinking about lara logan for example is not on fox at the moment um lara logan sort of queered her pitch there and they and she sort of uh uh, been been bounced from out from there, so she can't. She guest hosted for Tucker incidentally a couple of times, um, and and so there's the, the, you you know that they're giving the once over to things that are potentially problematic, and at the same time they know with me, for example, they know that if you were told you can't talk about this, you can't have that guest on, blah 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 blah. Um, that they would be looking for a guest host for that evening shows because I don't take well to that kind of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, more compli- – you know, it was interesting to me that Mark Levin was told on election day – you know, I, I'm I, – <laughs> Mark Levin testified under oath that I was a putz and he lost that one. His side lost. So who's the putz now? But Mark Levin, his whole persona is butch. He's a bit like Putin in that respect. He's, he's metaphorically uh, riding around bare-chested. So you've got, you, you got to maintain the butchness. But on election day, when Trump wanted to call into his show, Trump had seen some preliminary numbers, was discouraged by them, wanted to call in and uh, encourage people to get out and vote. And uh, Levin was told... By cumulus, he couldn't have Trump on the show. And he went along with it. And all he had to do was actually have Trump on, on the telephone. Uh, and, and if necessary, just say to the suits the following morning, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I, yeah, I saw there must have been a problem with the email. It just went straight to the, uh, the spam filter. Uh, and I never saw that email. That happens all the time. I don't know why it is. I'll say this, you know, whenever you're dealing with corporations, you've got to be, they have other interests that are nothing to do with what's bothering you, the people. So people come you know, he's the voice of the people and he's telling it like it is every day. And you've got all those promos, but you're working for a company for example, that has uh, significant business interests in China. And actually, those business interests in China outpace, you know, account for more than the news. So there's a lot. There's an awful lot of that going on. Then you have the thing about regulatory bodies, which exists to one degree or another in all places. So that, for example, uh, the butch boys at uh, what's that? What's that station called? Talk radio? Talk radio in the United Kingdom. Uh, there's subjects that will get you into trouble with Ofcom, and there's other ones where you can sound all butch and you won't get into trouble with Ofcom, the regulatory authority. So it's always easier to do. It's always easier to do those. And that's why um, that's, that's changed slightly in, in in a in a, now we have these companies with global interests, which is different. For for example, a lot of the news uh, companies, if you it's simply the fact that they you know they're owned by by they're a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a major entertainment organization. That wants to show its crappy superhero movies in China, or wants its crappy basketball players to be prancing around China. So you its not like it was. It's not like it was. And all I—I'm old enough, not really, uh, to be responsive to uh, that kind of stuff. So you know, people—people, people, generally speaking, people let me get away with saying it. The problem—the <laughs> problem, though is that uh, eventually I think we're going to have... I mean, a lot of the stuff we talk about, even in like this January 6th stuff here, it okay. it serves the interests of the Democrats. But what are the the so-called right-wing stations doing? You know, they're... Again, they're not actually... Half the time, they're not talking about anything that matters. Or they're talking about it in the wrong way. I saw something... I think this was on... um, america's newsroom dana perino introduced it and then the reporter wherever he was did this heartwarming thing it's a series of pride month featurettes the lgbt guys and this was a heartwarming story about a, a girl who had come out at five years old to her family and told them that she was in fact a boy and they had been supportive of it. And so they had been supportive of her need to identify her as a boy. So they changed the pronouns. And then uh, as the years went by, they put her on puberty blockers and uh, cut off her vestigial breasts and uh, did enough damage to her lady parts that if she ever changes her mind, she'll never be able to have any children. Um, because even though uh, I, I'd be surprised if uh, she had the old meat and two veg, uh, but, but she's living as a boy and uh, has been since she came out as, at five years old and they supported her in that. It's not in the least bit conservative to support transitioning at five years old, but Fox did it. Because it was one of these, oh, Pride Month story. We tell inspiring, heartwarming stories of people living their lives. So that's the problem. That's the problem here, is that on most of this stuff, the right accepts the left-wing framing of it. The right accepts the left-wing framing of it. I don't know what you can do about that. But all I ever say, I say it on the show a couple of times a week, I don't want to waste my time talking about... uh, uh, An- Angela Rayner's ginger growler, or Boris Johnson's party cake, or the these are distractions. There are left wing causes. There are left. Piers Morgan's thing. I'm very pleased to have had a rather good week trouncing Piers Morgan. I think one of the problems is, you know, going on about the woke stuff is boring because I tend to agree with Kate Smy that this is one of those distractions. These are basically just, you know, uh, tedious cultural ginger growlers that are lobbed out for us all to prance after. And uh, meantime, you know, Klaus Schwab and uh, Chairman Xi and all the others can get on with their megalomaniac plans for world domination in peace because uh, Piers Morgan has got the bit between his teeth over uh, somebody who wants to put a lesbian scene into a Jane Austen dramatization. You've got to be able to talk. You've got to have the freedom to talk about the stuff that's going to make the difference our world is changing our i mean to put it that's putting it politely our world is dying our world is dying look look around you uh everything is crapper than it was before the covid got started so you know i quit fox i i, I ceased uh accepting invitations to go on and talk about um Andrew Cuomo's dog and the pregnant man emoji. I think I'm, I got nothing against Tucker or Jesse Waters, but I, I think I had it two weeks in succession. Uh, the 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 pregnant man emoji and and the and Andrew Cuomo's dog. And if you think our our civilization is sliding off the bloody cliff. Why do you want to play along? I mean, I don't buy this term controlled opposition particularly. People say, oh, you're controlled opposition because I've been talking mostly about AstraZeneca victims rather than Pfizer victims. Well, that's to do with the people willing to come on uh, television and talk about it openly and also to do with the fact that um, AstraZeneca is a much bigger player in the British market than it is in the European or the American market. So that's just a function of where the show's made and who can get to the studio, but the, but the, but people say, "Oh, you're just controlled opposition. You're just talking about AstraZeneca. You know, I talk about what I want to. I talk about what I want to talk about, and I know what I don't want to talk about. Oh, we're canceling the cancel culture. Yeah, that's that. You know, these are pretty. These are pretty distractions. A lot of these things. Uh, let's have one more question. I got a bit long-winded on that. I'm terribly sorry. I got a bit of lower back pain. Got a bit of lower back pain. Not sure what that's about. Is it is that long COVID or uh, the first sign of the monkeypox? I don't know, but it's been a bit of a difficult show because I've got a bit of lower back pain. Uh, let's see what Alyssa Angel has to say. She says, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is making the rounds, signing a climate change agreement with the governor of California, appearing on the Stephen Colbert Show, giving a commencement address to Harvard grads, attending business development meetings at BlackRock offices in New York City, visiting Joe Biden and now having formal talks with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in Sydney. Is this typical? I can see meeting with the Australian PM in Sydney, but what's with the rest? <laughs> Uh, The agreement with the California governor can't be worth the paper it's written on. And wouldn't some muckety-mucket Blackrock rather fly to New Zealand to see her? I hear it's beautiful there. What's going on? Well, because she's a star to the left in a way that uh, uh, Sir John Key, uh, who was uh, I don't think he was her predecessor, but one was that right? Anyway, Sir John was in office as New Zealand PM for a long time. And uh, yeah, at uh, at uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, funeral, he and uh, Stephen Harper and Tony Abbott all got together and they had dinner in an Italian restaurant. And that's basically because they had no media engagement. So they just went to some ratty... Italian restaurant, you know, with the, um, with the bottle of wine with all the melted wax down it and, uh, and one of those easy-to-clean tablecloths. You can just wipe it down, all the rest. All very bare bones. Three regular blokes uh, having the spag bowl. Uh, somewhere in Joburg or wherever it was, and because nobody, oddly enough, nobody was calling from the Stephen Colbert show. <laughs> nobody wanted to, them to come on television at all. You figure you never saw Sir John Key on Late Night telly, did you? So, uh, you know Sir John Key was entirely unsought after by the hosts of The Late Show and The Tonight Show and all the other crap. Um, she is a pinup. To people on the left, and and the I, I don't think you know I don't think she did anything for Stephen Colbert's ratings. As you say, the signing signing bilateral agreements with places that aren't sovereign states. I don't even know whether he's allowed to do. I do know the New England governors meet with the Eastern Canadian premiers from time to time. Um, Uh, But I don't know that they actually sign treaties. I think they issue press releases. But signing a climate change, I I, kind of think that may well even be unlawful for uh, American politicians uh, to conduct privileged state-to-state relations with foreign entities. Anyway, um, you're right. Uh, But she is, you know... They're in the club. She's in the club. Sir John Key wasn't in the club. You know who's in the club. You see them all at Davos and all and all the rest of it. Thank you very much for all your questions. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been a bit of lower back pain, but I'm going to try and uh, and jolly myself out of it by uh, bouncing out of uh, around the room for the next couple of uh, minutes, because, as you know, we always have a little bit of music to close. And today is the centenary of Judy Garland, who lived a short life and has been dead a long, long time. Uh, We'll have a few centennial observances over the weekend, so we might as well start now. Um, Over the rainbow? Nah, too obvious. The man that got away? Uh, Likewise, I think. When Judy agreed to do a weekly TV show in the early 60s. CBS uh, assumed that the theme music was going to be Over the Rainbow, but Judy said no, she wanted to use the closing theme her parents had sung in Vaudeville back in the 1920s, an old novelty song very redolent of the period. Oh, I I had a guy. Who told me about? Uh, who was a producer on the Mark Stein show at GB News, and uh, I can relate to Judy's dilemma because I I was doing one of my "mammy" bits over Justin Trudeau in blackface, "mammy," and uh, and the guy said, uh, went upstairs and he was the senior executive or whatever the hell he was, and he said he wasn't comfortable with me using a 100-year-old song. Doesn't appeal to the hipster demographic. They're not very keen on Mammy. Anyway, I don't know what happened to him. I'm not sure he's working in television anymore, that guy. What was his name? Steve? Yeah, I'm not sure he's working in television anymore. Uh, And in fact, our biggest hit on the Mark Stein show is Debbie Reynolds singing Abba Dabba Honeymoon, which I play uh, whatever it is, four bars of every other night and uh we get all the <laughs> inquiries about it and everybody everybody loves it abba dabba dabba right? which we do as a jabba 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 song anyway so i can relate to uh, you know obviously i put my foot down because it's very hard to to prevent me from going mommy um so I can relate to Judy's uh, situation when CBS wanted her to sing Over the Rainbow as the closing theme. She said, no, I'm going to do my mum and dad's old closing theme from Vaudeville in the 1920s. And you can imagine how thrilled the network was, but she stood firm. And I like it because it reminds me of a side of uh, Judy Garland that the post-death mythologizing has pretty much buried. Uh, she's uh, now a tragic figure, Uh, whose pathetic end is uh, now implicitly present in all those renditions of Over the Rainbow. But everyone I've ever met who ever knew Judy, starting with her daughter, Liza Minnelli, and a couple of... Uh, her husbands, all of them, always go on about what a laugh she was, what fun she was. She had the wittiest lines at parties, she did the best sight gags, etc., etc. So I always liked this song, even if CBS executives didn't. Some years back, I had to write something uh, about Judy for something or other, and so I dug out a few old DVDs of that TV show. I think there's a book set out there or something. And my little girl sat next to me and she was always delighted by this song and especially the first line, which is a fabulous first line. So for a while, we always used to bellow it out when we'd be uh, driving around New Hampshire. It was written by Charles L. Cook and Howard C. Jeffrey. And if you're wondering who they are, well, I can tell you that Doc Cook was the band leader at Paddy Harmon's Dreamland Ballroom in Chicago for most of the 1920s. And that is one more fact than I can tell you about Howard C. Jeffrey, about whom I know nothing. Nevertheless, this is his fine lyric. Sing it, Judy. You
0: hear that? That's a song my mother and father used to sing in vaudeville. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I will come back when the elephants roost in the trees. I will come back when the birds make love to the bees. I will come back when the sun refuses to shine and present and cool. Is a cut mine. I will come back when the fish walk around on two feet and promenade up and down on Washington Street. When the snow has turned from white to blue, then maybe I will come back to you. Mother is a sister of mine When the snow has turned From white to blue Then maybe I will come back to you Yes, maybe I'll come back Could be I'll be back Maybe I'll come back
1: Thank you, Judy. I will come back when the elephants roost in the trees. My daughter so loved that line. Uh, Judy Garland, arranged and conducted by Nelson Riddle, who uh, just sat back and sold the swank of the tune. And we're appropriating uh, Judy's closing theme for our closing theme on this centenary. She was born Frances Ethel Gum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, June the 10th, 1922. We shall have more reflections on her music and movies and uh, poor taste in spouses over this weekend. And then we'll get back to the controlled explosion of the Western world. And maybe I will come back for next week's Clubland Q&A. Stay safe, stay free.
0: Markstein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.